uh, come to his word. Our true and living God, uh, we thank you that we can know you and know you for sure uh, because the word become flesh has come and lived amongst us. That he had a ministry that was seen, known, recorded and that he appointed apostles, messengers to bring his truth throughout the world. Our Father, we pray now as we come to look at what your spirit uh, caused Jesus' apostles to write, that you would give us understanding and we would know that this is your provision for us to live lives of faithfully following Jesus, uh, to live lives that please you. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive this word with faith and in your mercy to be people who hear and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last Sunday, of course, seems uh, like an age ago. Uh, it was, let's face it, PC, pre-Christmas. Uh, but then we did reflect on how we were feeling as uh, 2021 came to an end, using words like weary, uncertain, but also thankful. And we remembered that we could give thanks to God whatever our circumstances because his steadfast love endures forever. And it's also useful as 2021 comes to an end and uh, we're about to launch into 2022 to think about how we're going as a congregation. Again, thankful comes to mind. Uh, we have in large measure been preserved and we've experienced God kindness, God's kindness throughout the year through the gifts that he's given us in each other. And we acknowledged that last Sunday, but wasn't the carols again an experience of how God enriches our common life through giving such varied gifts to his people? From welcoming to PA, visual illusionists to musicians, cleaning to speaking the gospel. We can be thankful. But we could also use words like stressed and even wounded to describe our congregational life. Stressed by being unable to meet together for so long. Wounded by a divided reopening. Wounded because of the wounds we've received as individuals. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one part of the body of Christ, which is the Christian congregation, suffers, all the members suffer with it. And there has been suffering. Mental anguish for some impaired grieving for others, sickness, isolation, disrupted schooling, the stress of working from home. We come to the end of the year a little wounded. And uh, believe it or not, tearing my muscle last Friday week, the muscle in my calf, has actually given me an opportunity to reflect on the effect of a wound in one, just one part of your body. The rest of me feels fine, but... I'm slowed down, my movements and responses are hampered. And other parts of the body get stressed by unaccustomed use as you try and compensate for the part that's not working. Uh, you know, limp along too long and the hip starts to complain as well as the calf. And you get that sense of increased vulnerability and with it an increased caution, even with things that you 
doing all the time, like driving. And, of course, if you're a bit forgetful that you've been wounded, you can cause occasional bursts of pain. Wounded, slowed down, cautious, feeling stress in unusual places as you make them work harder. I think that's one of the ways you could describe us at the end of 2021. Having lost much of the momentum we had at the beginning of 2020, almost two years ago now. So what can we do about it? How can we restore and maintain congregational health? Rebuild that gospel momentum where people are becoming believers and being baptised, where we're confidently giving ourselves to service, growing in understanding of God's will and in lives rich in doing good. Well, of course, rest is part of it. And I'm hoping that we'll all get some rest over this January. But after a wound, rest alone won't rebuild strength and function. You need more, a prescription, perhaps an exercise regime that will build you up and keep you strong. And in God's providence, that's actually what God gives us in today's passage, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. His prescription to restore and maintain our health as the body of Christ here, the exercise regime that we're to follow. And it starts, like most exercise that's a little challenging, with what's going on in our heads, with getting our thinking right. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for your prayers. The end of all things. Now, Peter has spoken a little already about the awesome end of this age. He's spoken of the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time of the Lord Jesus being revealed in glory as this time as the last times. The end of all things is when the Lord Jesus will be revealed in glory and every knee will bow before him. When all are gathered for judgment, when this age and all that's evil is consumed by fire and the new heaven and earth revealed, and the people of the Lord Jesus raised to everlasting life. And the end of all things for Peter is something to be glad about, to long for, not something to be anxious about. A reason for living well, not for giving up and withdrawing, just looking after yourself like preppers. But what does he mean by at hand or near? What does he mean by near? I mean... Let's face it, it's now more than 1,900 years since Peter wrote that and the end hasn't arrived. Did he get it wrong? And if he was wrong about this, is he wrong about everything else? Did he get it wrong? No. You see, when Peter's talking about the end being near, he's not talking about a quantity of time, a closeness in years. He's talking about a timetable. You see, we don't know whether... Peter would be personally surprised to see us still meeting all these years later or not. But that wouldn't affect what he says. Near means that Christ's return is the next thing on God's timetable for his creation. Now that Christ has come, died, risen, ascended and poured out his spirit, there's no other stop on the timetable before the end. So Peter's communicating a theological judgment, not a calendrical calculation. A theological judgment based on who he knows Jesus to be, 
and what he knows the Lord Jesus to have done. You see, like other first century Jews from the Old Testament, Peter had learnt that God would bring what was called the age to come, the new heaven and earth where God's people would dwell in God's presence at peace with God. And that would happen when God sent his Christ, his Messiah, who would rescue God's people, defeat their enemies, restore Israel, establish an eternal reign. The Christ would usher in the time when God would pour out his spirit on God's people and raise them from the dead and bring the final judgment. Peter knew that like a good first century Jew. And then the Lord Jesus had come, preaching that the reign of God was near. And Peter had confessed Jesus to be the Christ, God's promised king. And the Lord Jesus had taught Peter to see in his cross the defeat of all the enemies of God's people, sin, death, the devil. Peter had seen Jesus rise from the dead and entering into an eternal reign at God's right hand, a reign confirmed by his pouring out of his spirit on his people and then sending the gospel, the good news of this victory, into all the world. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, his victory sure, his reign established, his people now, even now given the Spirit of God. And so he knew that all that remained was for the Lord Jesus to be revealed from heaven in glory when the end would come. Beyond the triumph of the Christ, there is no other major event to happen in God's timetable. The end was near. The next thing. And Peter, taught by Jesus, knew that end could never be a matter of calculation. He'd heard, as we heard this morning, the Lord Jesus say of his coming. Now concerning of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels nor the Son, except the Father alone. He knew that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, would come like a thief in, a, in the night, come at an hour that we don't expect him. The end was near, certain, but it's timing unknown. And so God's people must always be ready for what they know is sure to happen, even if they don't know, can't know the exact time. That the end is near and that we are living in the last days is actually the way New Testament, the New Testament thinks about the life and times of believers. So Paul writes in Romans, besides, you know the time. It's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is near. Or James, verse 8 of chapter 5, you also must be patient, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And so this is the way to, we are to think about our times. The end is near and we're now living in the last days. And that also tells us something about the character of our age, the character of our times. You see, we're still living in an age that's rejected its king, its creator, where many still live in rebellion against Christ and God, an age where the devil knows his time is short. And that will show in the kind of things we've already seen from 1 Peter that Peter and his hearers were experiencing, suffering for doing good, oh, needing to defend our beliefs and especially our hope. 
Oh, believers being subjected to foolish criticism, being treated with suspicion by those whose lifestyle is different. And yes, sometimes the fiery trial of direct persecution. That was true of Peter's day, been true throughout history to today. A world where believers are resident aliens, sojourners, never fully at home, often under pressure for their following of Christ. And an age where our Lord says, sadly, that because of the increase in wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Now, Peter is about to go on and tell us how we can live well as a community of God's people, be a healthy congregation in this age, live well in the light of the nearness of the end. But before we look at that, let's just pause. Pause to ask, how would my life, my thinking and action be different if I took the nearness of the end of all things seriously? I mean, we're Bible believers in this congregation. So when we hear Peter say the end of all things is near, oh, we nod and agree, you know. But it's an abstraction for many of us, isn't it, without any emotional force. What if we really believed the time was very close when the Lord Jesus would be revealed in glory and we, you and I, will give account for our service? If we really believe that nothing here, relationships, career, achievements, possessions, is ultimate, if we really believe that the things we invest so much in, labour for, that we measure the success or failure of our lives by, like money, property, degrees, family, respect of others, will soon pass away. And that only what we build on the rock, what we do in obedience to our Lord Jesus, will last. Would believing the end is near, really believing it, make a difference to what you think of yourself, your goals, your achievements, your choices, to what you give yourself to? If you thought you would soon be explaining to the Lord Jesus why you had used his time and money, the life and gifts he's given you and the way you are using them, would you be making different choices? The end of one year and the beginning of the next, well, that's a good time, isn't it? To make yourself some time to ask yourself those questions. And God in his kindness tells us here how we should be living, how we should be living as a congregation of believers in the light of the nearness of the end. So actually you can measure what you are doing against how God says you should live. The end of all things is near. Therefore, therefore, says Peter, we should have a certain mindset that shows itself in prayer. Be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Where to be alert? In the sense of the word translated alert, it's actually more right-minded. It's the word used to describe the Gerasene demoniac when he's healed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. It describes someone who keeps their head, who is reasonable. And sober-minded is someone who is clear-minded, not intoxicated or governed by their passions. Peter, you see, is calling us to think clearly in ways informed by the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, that reckon soberly with the nearness of the end. 
And so this is not a time to let our thinking be clouded by thinking that this world is ultimate or permanent or that there'll be no accounting for how we live our lives. And the purpose or result of this clear thinking is that we'll give ourselves to prayer. Notice that. Thinking clearly about the nearness of the end doesn't mean we become preoccupied with useless calculation or speculation. And it doesn't mean we run around like chicken littles crying out that the sky is falling. And it doesn't mean we abandon work to prompt the coming of the new age. The priority for those who are thinking clearly about the end is prayer. Now, Peter doesn't say we what we should be praying for individually and as a congregation, but the rest of the New Testament gives lots of direction on that, praying for the Lord's return, praying for boldness in speaking the gospel, for his people to be kept, for growth in godliness, praying for our enemies. But thinking clearly about the end means we pray. We pray because the living almighty God hears our prayers and can sustain us both through these times and bring to an end this present evil age. Now, over the lockdowns, some of us have been renewed in our habits of daily prayer, helped by the prayer and devotion emails and other aids. And I want to say to you, don't give up. A return to some kind of normal shouldn't mean we become too busy to pray. The end is near. So now is the time... Now is no time, sorry, to be half-hearted about prayer. That would actually mean we have lost clarity of thought. And to live well in this time as a congregation is to pray together. I know that our prayer meeting can disrupt our growth groups and it's been hard to build participation when we're all online. But we hope to return to having most of us in the building for the prayer meeting and our collective prayer says we know what time it is and we're depending on God to do his work and bring his saviour. Because the end of all things is near, we pray and we commit ourselves to love. Because of the pressure of the last days, as Jesus, as I've told you, Jesus warns us that Love can grow cold and we see in the church of Ephesus in Revelation that you can be a faithful church, doctrinally correct, and have lost love. But in these times, love has to be a priority for God's people. You notice he says, above all, before all things, love constantly. Our love is to be determined and persevering. We're to be unwavering in our love of our brothers and sisters, not on again, off again, which is so discouraging and confusing for others, but constant, something our brothers and sisters can rely on when they live in a world that's suspicious of them, that's pressuring them to pull back from doing good and being faithful to Jesus. The love of their Christian family that will comfort and provide in this world. Now, Peter highlights one particular reason why love for our brothers and sisters in the congregation must be constant, persevering. Love covers a multitude of sins, and we've talked about that in the children's talk. But it was so encouraging, wasn't it? It was so encouraging to hear the Coates and the Landris speak last Sunday, uh, speak 
to of being received with love. Oh, it was really encouraging. But we can't become complacent about love. The reality is, is that we continue to be a group of sinners. And in a group of sinners, we will from time to time wrong each other, disappoint each other, misunderstand each other, and sometimes treat each other with partiality. Now, when that happens, and notice it is when, not if, when that happens, we need to deal with it by repentance and forgiveness. But what we don't do is give up on each other. We don't exclude or separate or withdraw. We persevere in real relationships and can do that because of the love that covers a multitude of sins. You see, love doesn't keep bringing up those failings. It covers them over. It removes them from our focus. So love stops our hurt from becoming solidified into relationship-breaking bitterness and anger or a harping criticism that will drive others away. Love covers over sin because we want our brothers and sisters good. We want them to persevere in the faith. And we know that being in the congregation helps them to do that and driving them into the world by our lovelessness will harm them. And love wants to cover over sin because we know our brothers and sisters are precious, loved by Jesus, those for whom he died. And love covers over sin because we know that we are loved like that, that the Lord Jesus has brought us into his family and keeps us in his family because in his love he's given his shed blood to cover over all our offences, to remove them from God's sight forever. If we're to recover from the wounding of lockdown, we need this love. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, it is a deliberate decision to practice it. A deliberate decision to hang in, to come back to loving others, not just in our own small circle, but all our brothers and sisters, not just those that we've chosen, but those Jesus has chosen. Lockdown may have shrunk temporarily, those we could meet with, but we mustn't let it shrink our hearts. So decide to engage with loving all Jesus' people. And love is a deliberate decision, a decision to overlook the way others might have disappointed us in lockdown, lost touch with us, even we think forgotten us. We love because Jesus has loved us and he calls us first of all, above all, to love those he loves perseveringly. And as an expression of that love, Peter calls us to be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, what did being hospitable involve for Peter's first hearers? Well, one aspect of it, which we know from early Christian writing of the late first and early second centuries, was actually putting up overnight travelling gospel preachers and the messengers of churches. And the inns of the time were notoriously bad, unhealthy, often associated with theft, drunkenness and prostitution. So Christians avoided them relying in their travels on the hospitality of fellow believers. Now, the hosts didn't know these travellers, but still they received them as fellow believers on the road to do the Lord's will. 
Hospitality in this case involves having strangers in your house at short notice, eating your food and sharing your facilities. The other aspect of hospitality, particularly if people had means, was hosting the meeting of the local church because there were no church buildings then. So if the congregation was to gather, it had to be at someone's place. That gathering was so important then as now. So important for knowing other believers, giving mutual encouragement, learning the faith. Yet it was definitely intrusive and probably inconvenient to have the church at your house. I mean, the meeting was either before or after the working day. It drew on one's resources and involved people you may not know or who are of a completely different social class coming to your place. Yet Peter calls on believers to keep showing hospitality without complaining or grumbling. Now, we probably excuse our grumbling a little bit, but actually grumbling serious. That was the word uh, used of the Israelites complaining about God's arrangement of things in the wilderness exodus, whether it was lack of meat or his plan to invade Canaan. You see, grumbling serious because it's saying God hasn't got it right in the way he's organised life. Oh, God doesn't care. Oh, God expects what God expects of us is a little unrealistic and thoughtless, just too much. Grumbling serious. It's a serious lack of faith in God and it provokes his judgment. Hospitality, having people in your home, sharing what God has given you with your brothers and sisters is God's will. Whether that's hosting a growth group, taking the initiative to connect people over a meal, having the youth group or parts of it over or hosting a Christianity explored or making sure a fellow believer has a roof over their heads when times are tough. Hospitality contributes to the perseverance of the congregation as a distinct community of believers marked out by love and can like first century believing believers hosting travellers, contribute to the spread of the gospel. Now, hospitality's work, it puts you out. You may not know all the people who come well, but we're to do it without grumbling because it's our Lord's goodwill and we know in showing hospitality to our brothers and sisters that we're actually showing hospitality to the Lord Jesus. Remember Matthew 25, our Lord said to the sheep, those who will enter into eternal life, I was a stranger and you took me in. And they said, when did we see you a stranger and take you in? And our Lord said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now wouldn't you be delighted to show hospitality to the Lord Jesus? I hope that's something that would move you. Well, he says you can in showing hospitality to one another. So how to be a healthy community in the last days? Prayer, love, hospitality and service. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be glory 
and power forever and ever is the starting point. Each one has received a gift from God's grace and all are called to serve, to use their gifts to serve others. Now, Peter doesn't list the gifts here. In fact, he groups them just into two categories, doesn't he? Speaking and serving. And that's because he's focused on our attitude to our gifts and the manner and goal of everyone's service. You could find a list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, Ephesians 4. But as you look at them, remember that those lists are descriptive of gifts at Corinth and Rome, not prescriptive of the gifts gifts that all churches must have. In fact, any ability in a believer, that is someone who confesses Jesus as Lord, any ability that is or can be used to build up God's people would be reckoned as a gift of God's grace to his people. And those abilities extend far beyond those listed in the New Testament. And we've seen that in our congregation, haven't we? We've been blessed by God's gracious gifts to us of musicians, people with tech know-how, ability in plumbing, aircon, computer skills relating to children, as well as gifts written in the New Testament, gifts of mercy, administration, encouragement, teaching, evangelism. In fact, in God's kindness, the list of gifts really is endless. God has given us all something that can be used to build up his people. But how should we think about those gifts? How should we use them and to what end? Well, says Peter, we have to think of ourselves as stewards of something entrusted to us by God. Now, a steward is not the owner. They're the people entrusted by the owner with some responsibility. And in English, a a steward is most often someone entrusted with the care of a property or a household. And so the steward has to care for it or operate it according to the owner's instruction, knowing they are accountable to the owner for how they've used, looked after, for what belongs to the owner. And Paul tells us that the one thing that's looked for in a steward is faithfulness, doing what the owner has instructed her or him to do and not being lazy in caring for what belongs to our master. And so, brothers and sisters, the gifts you have are not your own. They've been entrusted to you by God to be used God's way. And God's word says they are to be used to serve others not for self, for our benefit or glory. By those gifts, God has made provision for the welfare and growth of his people. And they are so therefore to be used for the welfare and growth of his people. So using your gift is actually not about your satisfaction or enjoyment, but about whether the Lord will be satisfied by your service of others with your gift. You're not doing your brothers and sisters a favour by using your gift for their benefit. You're actually just showing that you have received favour, grace from God, and you look to him, not those you serve, for your reward. And that's why we persevere in service even when others might be thankless or we might be unnoticed. We're to think of ourselves as stewards who will give account to our Lord for the gifts that he's entrusted to us. And then Peter talks about the manner in which we serve, grouping all the gifts into those two categories. If anyone speaks, 
Let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. If anyone speaks, teaches, evangelists, but you could also think of growth group leaders, Sunday school and youth group leaders, parents teaching their children God's word. They have to do it as one who speaks God's words. Now, this is not saying we speak as if we have direct revelation from God. Peter is speaking about manner, not content. But he is saying that the way we speak and teach God's word has to be consistent with what it is, the word of the living God. And so we shouldn't be mixing in our own insights and speculations with God's word, but keeping it distinct as it is. And we should speak with a suitable seriousness and zeal, as if it matters how people hear and respond, because it does matter. And we should never trivialise it or be offhand or unprepared. We should use our gift knowing we are sharing the word of the living God. And then he speaks to those who serve. And again, it's very general and it could include those who do acts of mercy or provide administration or those who serve with IT or PA, with cleaning or on the board. They should serve from the strength, it says in our translation, that God provides. But as with speaking, this is speaking about the manner of our service, not the source, which we already know is from the gift of God's grace. We are to serve as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. Now, what does that say about the manner of our service? (coughs) Well, it means we go about our service with a cheerful wholeheartedness, knowing we serve the God who can, as he did with the bread and fishes, take our small resources and make them sufficient to do what he's asked. It's asking us not to be anxious about our service, not resentful of the drain on our resources and not defensive, fearful that what God calls us to with the gift he provides will overwhelm us. It doesn't mean we always say yes because there are other things going on in our lives and it doesn't mean we should think ourselves omnicompetent, fit for anything, for he's talking about service with the gifts God has given. But it does mean our service flows from trust in our God, not trust in our own competency. And our manner of service should match that confidence in God. And when we serve God's people with the gifts God supplies in the manner God commands, knowing we are accountable to God, then God will be glorified through Christ in everything. That's actually the goal of our service, that in whatever way our brothers and sisters are blessed by the use of the gifts God gives to serve them, their praise and thanks be given to God, that his reputation is enhanced, that people grow in their knowledge and confidence in God's goodness and power. That is what we want to see happen through our common life, by the character of our Christian community, by its prayerfulness, love, hospitality, service of each other with, which, with what God has entrusted to us. What we want to see is that our God is glorified through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ because it can only be through Jesus Christ. Because it's only through believing in Jesus 
that we can have confidence in prayer, that we can come to know his love, which is the source and measure of our love for each other, that we receive the spirit and the gifts distributed by him. And so Peter reminds by finishing us, of, by, finishes by reminding us uh, of Jesus' greatness. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And that's perfectly consistent with the goal of our service, that God be glorified through Jesus. For glory is given to God when we honour and glorify the Son he has sent into the world to save us. Well, thinking rightly about our times and embracing the life of those who think rightly, the life of prayer, love, generous hospitality and service. This is the prescription we need, the exercise regime we need to restore and maintain our health after the wounding of the last two years, a life that brings glory to our God, the right life for those who know the end is near, for all those who know Jesus, who he is, and what God has done in sending our Lord Jesus into the world. It's a life motivated by knowing God's grace to us in Christ, knowing his love, knowing his generosity to us, knowing that we can draw near to him. It is the life God calls us to live. The question is, Will we take the prescription gratefully and diligently? Uh, I used to write prescriptions as a doctor, uh, knowing that some actually never filled them out. Some would take the medicine for a while and then stopped before the prescribed course ran out because they felt okay. Some would take the tablets occasionally when they felt the need, even though they were prescribed as regular medication and some would fill the script and put the pills in the cupboard for a rainy day or for a more deserving neighbour. Uh, we, uh, many of us, are actually not particularly good at taking or doing what's prescribed. But this prescription isn't from a fallible doctor and it's not for a temporary need. This is the way God wants his people to live together in this age. So don't be like some of my patients. Don't start and then stop. Don't shelve it for a rainy day. Don't put it aside as a prescription for others. Let's show we're thinking clearly about our times and circumstances by keeping on practising prayer, Practising the love that covers a multitude of sins, practising hospitality and using our gifts God's way to God's glory so that by this time next year we'll be praising God for returning and sustained health after our wounding of these last two years. Praising God for answers to diligent prayer and because we've been embraced in love blessed by hospitable brothers and sisters, served and being served with the gifts God has given each of us. I'm praying that that will be so. But of course, like every feature of our life together, it's not just up to me, is it? It's up to each one of us, right? It's up to each one of us to be here and to be doers of the word 
so that our great and generous God who's loved us and as we celebrated yesterday, sent his son into the world to save us so that he is glorified through his son Jesus in our common life and to him be all the praise and glory. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, our clear words that we should understand our times and give ourselves to prayer, to love, to hospitality and to service for Jesus' sake because we know his love and we want you, our Father, to be honoured through him. Our gracious God, help these words not to be lost. Give us opportunity to reflect on our lives and how we are living them in the light of the end and in your mercy, Make us individually and together doers of this word, to your honour and glory. Amen.